Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. Hear now the word of God. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every sin whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what... Uh, that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, from time to time, uh, I will watch uh, clips of motivational speakers. Uh, you know, I have my iPad and uh, I'm lying there in bed and the, my wife is reading something and, and I'll you know, be watching these little one to two minute YouTube videos. And among those that I watch, there are some that I'm drawn to where these motivational speakers extol the virtues or the benefits of suffering. Now, at first glance, that might sound uh, out of place, and it might sound like a sentence that doesn't fit, uh, but yet what it is is they present the idea that any type of suffering, uh, physical pain, that it's often weakness leaving the body. It's often weakness leaving the body. In other words, if you can discipline yourself uh, to uh, run uh, every morning, then however difficult it might seem at first, it begins to get easier. There's a sense in which every time you run, you get a little bit better. You know, it works that way when it comes to any kind of difficult task. You may find it difficult uh, and, and perhaps even mentally tasking to learn a new language. But the more that you study it, the better you become. The weakness of your ignorance begins to leave your mind and you begin to, to gain an ability of acquiring this new skill. It's one thing, however, to seek mild, controlled doses of pain and discomfort for the sake of growth. You know, for example, denying yourself certain foods in order to be healthy. I feel like that is a pain that I regularly suffer as I see the dessert on the table and I think, oh boy, do I want some of that. And it always seems that I decide I'm going to try to restrict my diet just when something like that shows up. It's like, hey, let's go to get, get ice cream. And I'm like, no, please, let's not. Going to the gym in order to sweat so that you can get some muscle. Uh, living perhaps under Spartan conditions in order that you might see extraordinary places. One of the things that I remember is that the wife and I, we got to go on a hiking trip that was over nine days where we went into the high Sierra Mountains in California and we were up above the tree line, 12, 13,000 feet. 
It was absolutely glorious, and we got to see a part of the country that few people ever get to see at the pain of sleeping in tents on a regular basis. That's no fun as far as I'm concerned. Uh, But it was worth it, you know, living under those Spartan conditions. But what happens when the pain is uh, involuntary, thrust upon you, and it's seemingly more than you can handle? You know, it's one thing to go to the gym and, and to do some exercises, but it's another thing when you get to the gym and you have a trainer And that trainer is your taskmaster. And that trainer begins inflicting pain upon you and exercise, pushing you beyond your limits. Or at least what you think are your limits. One of the most painful experiences of my life was working with a trainer. And then the next day, I kid you not, barely being able to walk because my legs were in so much pain because of the muscle soreness. Well, I think... It's that involuntary pain when it's thrust upon us. It's not that which is under our control, but rather when that pain is thrust upon us and we begin to look for the exit because we're suffering. It hurts. We don't want it. That's the nature of the pain that uh, the, the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were enduring. They were experiencing this. They were subject to persecution and suffering. And they naturally looked for a way out, even, in some cases, if it meant apostasy. And so what the author here does is he's giving them greater context to say, let me put your pain and suffering in the proper context, in the proper light. Because if you understand why it's come upon you, that it's not random chance, that it is not because of something that you have done and therefore God is punishing you, but rather that there is something greater afoot, then you'll understand it. And in understanding it, you will seek to not simply endure or persevere, but to overcome and even to conquer. And so what we want to do is we want to seek to understand what it is that the author here says first by having the right perception. In other words, how well do we perceive our situation? When we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, we have to perceive things aright. Secondly, we have to ask the question, is it punishment? I think that's a natural question. Is the suffering in my life as a result of some sort of sin in my life? And is God visiting me with his punishment? So it's important that we understand the nature of our Heavenly Father's actions. And then third and finally, we want to consider the pursuit and the aim of our suffering. In other words, how and what do we pursue in our lives as we find ourselves in the midst of suffering? So perception punishment and pursuit. So let's think first of the perception. How well can we understand the events as they unfold in our lives? I think that one of the most important things in rightly perceiving a situation is is having the proper context, having the proper context. When we experience something, we might at first think that one of the worst things has happened to us. One of the worst things has happened to us. But putting our lives within a larger picture helps us to put things in perspective. You know, I can remember uh, working at a job in my first years uh, when I first was in high school and I was working my first summer job where I got to the job site and, and the foreman 
you know, welcomed me and he gave me a handshake and he said, okay. Uh, I said, what, what do you want me to do? He says, yeah, you see those two pallets of shingles. And these pallets of shingles were about four feet tall each. And I said, oh, sure, I see them. He said, start bringing shingles up to the roof. And I said, okay, great, happy to do so. How many packs do you want? He said, all of them. And so for the next two days, that's all I did was haul shingles to the roof. These things were heavy, 75 pounds a pack. And I began to think to myself, this is pretty miserable. I don't like this. I'm suffering. I'm sweating. (laughs) I'd much rather be inside pushing a pencil. And uh, I began to think about it a little bit more to the point where I realized, well, maybe it's not so bad because I have a job. There are many people in this world that don't have jobs that would really, really just chomp at the bit to get at the opportunity just to have a job as difficult as this one might be. Moreover, the more I begin to think about it, it's like, well, at the end of the summer, I get to go back to school. There's some people for whom this is their regular job all the time. Context, by putting our situation within a broader context, it helps us to perceive the situation in the proper light. And so this is what the author's doing here. The, the recipients of his letter were undoubtedly suffering, and he's acknowledged as such. In Hebrews 10.34, he says, For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The, the authorities came in, and they took away their property. They were persecuting them for the sake of the gospel. Moreover, there were Christians who were put in prison... And as a result of either being imprisoned or perhaps simply because they were associated with those who were imprisoned, (coughs) people were losing their possessions. And by their possessions, this could mean their homes. This could mean their livelihoods. This could mean their clothing. And in the ancient world where possessions were typically few and far between, to lose the very few possessions that you owned could potentially mean the difference between life and death. Now, I don't want to minimize their suffering, especially from a perch upon which I stand. In other words, I have all of my possessions. I have not lost any of them. Nevertheless, what the author does is he tries to paint the larger context of their lives to put their suffering in perspective. And he says, yeah, you've lost your possessions. But he says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, he's not ignorant of their sufferings, but yet he's simply putting it in the larger perspective. You know, a colleague of mine uh, about a year and a half ago had basically his house burned down on the inside. The house was completely ruined on the inside. Uh, blessedly, the external portions of the house were preserved, so they didn't have to tear down the house, but they had to relocate and they had to completely redo the interior of the house. But he, by the grace of God, was able to put it in the right perspective. He said, yes, it's inconvenient to more or less lose the majority of our possessions and to start over completely from scratch, But we're grateful that we have our health and our lives. Nobody was injured in this fire. He was able to see things in the larger perspective. You know, so here the author is reminding his recipients, you still have your lives. You still have your health. And in contrast with the lives of the saints in chapter 11, 
where he notes in chapter 11, verse 37, speaking of some of the Old Testament saints, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. Now, he's not trying to belittle the suffering that they were enduring, but rather simply giving them a greater perspective, bigger context to say, you can press on. This isn't too much for you. God has you in his hand. So in their struggles with the persecution and even as they waged war against their own sin, he's reminding them, your lives are intact. You have not uh, resisted to the point of shedding blood. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. I think what the author is simply reminding them is a truth that Jesus has told us in the Gospels in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, when I had the privilege a number of years ago of leading a friend to Christ whom I had known through work, one of the things that I told him after he prayed to receive Christ is I said, I don't want you to misunderstand the nature of the Christian life. I don't want you to think that from this point forward, everything is going to be easy. I said, in fact, don't be surprised if things actually get more difficult. Such is the nature of the Christian life. We have to be willing to take up our crosses and to follow Christ. And this, I think, is what the author is placing before his recipients. He's saying, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. He's not minimizing their suffering, but he's saying, press on, go forward. And so I think that this is an important picture for context, because all too often, when we encounter the way of the cross, when we encounter suffering, when we encounter difficulties, apart from this context, we end up misunderstanding the nature of our suffering, which brings us to our second point. In other words, sometimes we think when we suffer, it's punishment. It's punishment. You know, when we encounter the trials, there's, there are a number of different responses or perhaps things that we go through in our minds. Maybe sometimes a likely first thought is we've done something wrong and maybe God is punishing us. And in fact, there are indeed a number of passages of scripture to this end. In the 13th chapter of Romans, verse 4, Paul says about the powers of the magistrate that God hasn't given to the magistrate. He's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we're familiar with these passages and we think, well... Maybe God is punishing me for something. 1 Peter 2:13 and 14 be subject to the Lord's uh, to be subject uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So we might ask ourselves the question have I done something wrong? Have I done something to deserve some sort of punishment? Now, in this particular case, it's from the authorities. This is not to say, as we all know too well, that the authorities always punish with equity and fairness. But what if we come to the conclusion that, no, I haven't done anything wrong as best as I can tell. This isn't to say that oh, I'm sinless, that I have done no wrong whatsoever. 
but rather in the, in the nature of the Christian life, there's no outstanding open rebellion as far as we can tell. And then if we do sin, we make amends right away so that there's nothing obvious in that sense. Well, I know sometimes some people have gone to a second erroneous thought if they say, well, maybe it's not God's punishment. Is it possibly God's curse? And in fact, there have been those with whom I have encountered who've been in the ministry of the gospel, who have said, God may visit his curse, even upon believers. And I've always rejected that idea utterly because of what the scriptures themselves teach us about the nature of God's curse. When Paul talks about the curse of God, he says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. For those who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in him, who are united to him, there is no curse. One of the most hope-filled truths, I believe, that the scriptures teach us and convey to us is that the moment we place our faith in Christ, we no longer know God as judge, but we know him as our heavenly father. And there is literally a world of difference between going to a judge and going to our heavenly father. There is a difference between curse and fatherly discipline. Worlds of difference. And in fact, I would say a world of difference in the sense that the one is hell and the other is heaven. And it's all of its blessings that come along with it because of our union with Christ. And so here we can eliminate a couple of erroneous ideas out of hand. We can say that, no, if we haven't done anything wrong, in other words, say, for example, we're not harboring secret sin, that would then require God to discipline us or to punish us. And no, we are certainly not bearing God's curse because Christ has borne the curse for us. So then how are we to understand the nature of some of the suffering in our lives if we haven't done something wrong overtly? Well, I think the first clue to answering this question lies in earlier portions of the book of Hebrews. And in particular, it's Hebrews 5.8, where the author says of Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The son of God was incarnate as a man and he learned obedience. Note, and we would underscore this, highlight it, italicize it through what he suffered. Through what he suffered. That is, as a man, he learned to submit to his father's will, something that we see most powerfully captured in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So suffering is not always connected, is not always connected to punishment. There is a suffering that is connected to learning obedience. Think, for example, of Job's suffering. 
You know, that is one of the more fascinating narratives, one of the most fascinating histories uh, in the Old Testament, because not only do we see the pain and the suffering in Job's situation, but the scriptures and the Holy Spirit pulls back the veil so that we can also see what occurs in the heavens as to why this situation unfolds in Job's life. So that we know that he's not harboring secret sin. We know that he is not um, being cursed or punished, but rather it's suffering for a different purpose. It's to reveal the glory of God And in the end, it's anachronistic to say it this way, but substantively it's true. God was conforming Job to the image of Christ. Jesus was sinless and righteous and nevertheless suffered. We know, of course, that he suffered to bear our sins. But as we read in Hebrews 5, 8, that he learned obedience through what he suffered. And I think it's that Christ-shaped understanding of suffering that helps us to understand what our Heavenly Father is doing when he brings suffering into our lives. And the author puts it this way in verses 5 and 6 when he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now here the author quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And remember from our series in in Proverbs that the overall context there is Solomon instructing his sons in wisdom. In other words, the Lord's discipline is ultimately about conforming us to the image of Christ, conforming us to his wisdom. And who is God's wisdom incarnate but Jesus Christ? Just as Christ learned obedience, so too we learn that obedience through the divinely ordained trials that we suffer. Our inclination might be to think that we've done something wrong or that God has somehow forgotten us. But the opposite is true, says the author. Chapter 12, verses 7 and 8, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, when these trials come into our lives, it's the Father disciplining us. But this is where I want us to expand our definition of discipline. Because I think when we hear that word discipline, we think punishment. I'm going to discipline my child. And used in that phrase or in that sentence, yeah, it means punishment. But embedded in the word discipline is the word disciple. And there is another sense in which discipline is not just simply punishment, but rather it involves instruction. You know, think of it. In order to learn a language, you need the discipline to study the vocabulary, to study the grammar. And apart from that discipline, you won't ever learn the language. And so in the trials that we encounter in this life that come about by God's providential ordination, think of it as learning the vocabulary and the grammar and the language of sanctification 
and our conformity to Christ, apart from the discipline of receiving that instruction, we will not be conformed unto the image of Christ. And what the author says here is that it's the Father's discipline, it's the Father's instruction by which he is treating us as sons, as those whom are supposed to be brought into conformity with his image. And in this sense, we can apply C.S. Lewis's powerful observation when he says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so that in our sufferings, he is in a sense raising his voice to get our attention to say, I love you and I am conforming you unto the image of Christ. We can change the metaphor and we can say that the trials that we encounter are in no way the Father's punishment, but rather it's the refiner's fire that burns away the dross of sin and leaves only the gold of holiness and righteousness. And so the question is, is in the midst of our trials and the challenges that we face, understanding the bigger context, that it's the discipline, the instruction of our Heavenly Father Third and finally, what do we pursue in the midst of these trials? You know, the the refiner's fire is hot. This is the only way to separate the dross, the imperfections from from the gold so that the gold is pure. And so given the heat, we naturally know that trials will be challenging and even painful. I think the author was well aware of the difficulties and the sufferings of his recipients. He says in verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The author knew the discomfort and the pain, but he was also trying to convey to them, there's a goal and your suffering is momentary. Meaningless suffering would be cruel, but suffering with a goal and a purpose is entirely a different manner. You know, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know in the race all the runners run, but only one receives to run the prize or to receive the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In the same way that the athlete, in a sense, seemingly punishes his or her body in order to achieve a level of fitness, in order to win the prize, to win the fight, to to win the race, we have to be prepared to discipline our lives according to the will of God. And by his grace, we can do so, but it's so that we can win that imperishable crown. And so this is where we have to recognize that ultimately the trials that come into our lives are not self-discipline, but rather it's our Father's discipline. The trials in our lives are the anvil upon which the Father hammers our lives into greater conformity to Christ's holy image. As Christ's path of suffering where he learned obedience led to the cross, so too we find our path 
uh, leading to the way of the cross, to, to, to the Via Dolorosa, as it's called. So then the question is, if that is the goal, if it's greater conformity to Christ, then how are we going to pursue the goal? Are we going to look haggard? Are we going to run doing the survivor's shuffle? Maybe you've seen somebody doing that. Maybe you've done the survivor's shuffle. I know I have. Go on a low-carb diet and then try to go run. <laughs> You're going to do the survivor shuffle. I had like zero energy, and I thought, this is, this is painful. Are we going to hang our heads low? And I can remember there was a point in my life when I was in college, and at the time I was going to school full-time and working full-time, so I was sitting there at the job, and I was working security, so I was at the, at the door letting employees in, and... Uh, and one of the cleaning people walked by, and she saw me. And I don't remember specifically why it was that I was depressed, but she could tell I was depressed. She could tell I was depressed. And I kind of had my head hanging low. And she said to me, and this was a woman who was not, you know, she was of low means, to put it, to put it politely. So in other words, she had far less, far less, in her life that she could count as perhaps blessings in comparison to my life, which by comparison was much easier. You know, she was an older woman working a very low-paying job. I was a young man in college, uh, probably making more money than she was, and yet I was depressed. And she said to me, you know, I don't know what's got you down, but I know the Lord is good, and you don't have any reason to hang your head low. No matter what's going on, keep your chin up. And I thought, you know, she's right. She's right. Are we going to hang our heads low when we encounter difficulties? Are we going to do the survivor shuffle? Are we going to look haggard? What does the author say? Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lay may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. You know, he's saying, stand up straight. Stick up your chin. Hold your head up high. You're, you're the, a son of God. And God may be disciplining you, but that's no reason to be depressed or to lack peace, but rather it's a reason to fill your heart with joy. Or in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians four sixteen and following, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We could say, lift up your chin, lift up your eyes to the heavens where Christ is seated. And draw your strength and your perseverance from him. Pick up your arms, straighten out your knees, walk proud, walk tall. So, beloved, when we look at our lives, we always have to look at them through the lens of our Heavenly Father's love in Christ. You know, abstracted, apart from that context, our trials may seem like a butcher's knife. Our trials may seem like a forest fire. But yet, seen within the proper context, we will recognize that it's not the butcher's knife, but it's our father's surgeon's scalpel, carefully and cautiously cutting out and removing the cancerous sin from our lives. 
In, in the context of our Father's love in Christ through the Spirit, the seemingly out-of-control forest fire of a blaze of a trial is the refiner's fire that is burning out the impurities in our life so that the only thing that is left is the purity of holiness and righteousness. Knowing this, we can rejoice in knowing that the trial in our life is not evidence that God has forgotten us or doesn't love us, but on the contrary, it is the most supreme evidence that he loves us because he is sanctifying us. He is conforming us to his son and he is shouting to us in the midst of our pains. As difficult as our trials may seem, he's making us more like Christ. So beloved, pray that the spirit would enable you to see your life aright in the light of the cross of Christ, and that by God's grace in Christ, we would lift our drooping hands, that we would strengthen our weak knees, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would make straight paths for our feet so that God in Christ of the Spirit would heal us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful. We are grateful for your love. But help us, O Lord, in the midst of our trials, as difficult as it may seem and as counterintuitive as it may also seem, that we would give thanks for the trials that you bring our way. That we would give thanks because we would recognize that you are loving us, that you're disciplining us, that you're instructing us, that we are learning obedience to the things that we suffer in the economy of the grace of your gospel, in the power of the all-sustaining work of Christ in your spirit. Oh, Father, we can so quickly forget Christ and the spirit and the message of your word, and we think of the trials in our lives as evidence of your abandonment, as evidence of your anger, as evidence even as your punishment when the exact opposite is true. These trials, O Lord, are evidence of your love, evidence, O Lord, of the artist's intention to take the chisel of the trial to to chip away the imperfections so that all that remains is the holy image of Christ. O Father, give us patience in the midst of our trials. For most of us, I suspect, we have not resisted sin to the point of shedding blood, so I pray that you would strengthen our resolve. Help us not to worry. Help us not to fear. Help us not to doubt, but rather to press on, that we would run the race in such a way as to win that imperishable crown. But help us to remember that we can only run it in the power of your grace, in the power of Christ through your Spirit. Glorify yourself in in, in our lives. We pray and ask all of these things for Christ's sake. Amen.